A number of years ago, I read a biography of a pastor named A.W. Tozer. He was a very influential American pastor and is author of some of the most beloved spiritual writings of the 20th century. He was in so many ways a model of faith and sanctity. And yet, as I learned from reading this biography, he was also a man who had his own faults. For all of the great good he did for his own church and for churches around the English-speaking world, he wasn't very attentive as a husband or a father. He tended to neglect his wife and children. He failed to love or provide for them as he should have. And learning that about him changed my opinion of him. Not that I thought him any less sincere or had any less admiration for his personal faith or his spiritual insight, but I did come to realize that Tozer wasn't some perfect saint with no weaknesses. He was a great man, but he was also a man who had his own faults. And, you know, if you think about it, that's true of all saints, every great hero of the faith. No matter how holy or learned or pious they are, every great hero of the faith is still an imperfect sinner in need of redemption. As Frederick Buechner once said, the feet of saints are as much of clay as everybody else's, and their sainthood consists less of what they have done than of what God has for some reason chosen to do through them. And that's just as true of biblical saints as it is the, the great heroes of Christian history. The men and women whose lives make up the pages of the Bible, they had feet of clay. And we do well to learn as much from their failures as from their successes. Even Father Abraham, the great model, the great hero of faith, even Abraham had faults and failures. And in this session, we'll focus our attention on, on one of those faults and what it has to teach us. To be more specific, in this session, we'll be focusing on Abraham's doubt. Now, as I mentioned in the last session, Abraham is often, for good reason, regarded as a paragon of faith. Even the New Testament itself describes him in this way. But in Genesis, Abraham's faith is inconsistent. At times, it wavers. At times, what we find is not trust, but disbelief. Not so much faith, but doubt. In fact, you can see evidence of that doubt mixed in, mixed in even the moments of great faith in his life. Take what happens in the beginning of chapter 15 of Genesis, for instance. Years have gone by since God first made his promise in chapter 12 that he would make Abram into a great nation. And yet so far, his wife Sarah has borne no child. Abram has no heir. So when the Lord appears to him in a vision in chapter 15, Abram begins to question whether or not God will be true to his promise. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You could see the, the doubt beginning to creep into Abram's mind. But God reiterates his promise. He will make him into a great nation. And his heir will be his own son, not, not some household servant. And then we read that Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
It's one of the great and most triumphant moments of faith in Abraham's life that he believed this promise of a son. And yet, despite that great triumph, it doesn't seem that Abraham has really gotten over his struggles with doubt. Because in the very next chapter, when his wife Sarah comes to him, saying it's obvious that she's being prevented from having any children, and he should just have sexual relations with her female servant, Hagar, and produce a child that way. And Abraham listens to her, and he does what she says. Of course, you could try to defend their actions. One 4th century theologian by the name of Didymus the Blind did just that. He said that Sarah's proposal demonstrates her, her practical wisdom and her lack of jealousy toward her husband. And Abraham's response, his willingness to go along with this proposal, it shows that he was a man who was so in control of his own libido that he could have relations with a woman, not for any kind of carnal reason, but simply for the need to produce a child. That's what Didymus says, but I think that's probably being a little too generous to both Abraham and Sarah here. The reason that they're trying to take control of the situation isn't because of their unwavering trust in God's promise. It's because they're beginning to doubt it. That's why in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul describes the, the child that Abraham does produce with Hagar as a son born, as he puts it, according to the flesh. And he contrasts that with the son born through the promise. Because when Paul read this story, he saw what was taking place here. This whole strategy of Hagar having a son, that's not an act of faith. It was an act of desperation, born of doubt. And that doubt continues into chapter 17. Again, the Lord appears to Abraham, and again, he promises a son. This time, making it very explicit that the son he's promising will be the son of Sarah. Now, how does Abraham respond? He laughs. He laughs so hard that he can't keep standing up. He falls right down on his face and laughs right in God's presence. It's a shocking moment. Abraham, the great hero of faith, is laughing at the promise of God. In fact, it's so shocking that you might want to think that Abraham's laughter is not what it seems. For instance, another early church father by the name of Cyril of Alexandria, he suggested that Abraham's laughter here that it, that it didn't come from doubt. It was actually just Abraham joyously marveling at what the Lord had said. But as charitable as that interpretation may, might be to Abraham, it doesn't really sit well with the fact that Abraham doesn't just laugh at the absurdity of the Lord's promise. He also immediately proposes an alternative to it. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham has come to regard God's promise as so outrageously unlikely that he's trying to help the Lord out here. It's almost as if he's saying, don't promise such crazy things. Here, just, just take this son of Hagar, Ishmael, use him instead. And then just a chapter later, Sarah does the exact same thing. The word of the Lord again comes to them, promising Abraham a son through Sarah. 
And this time it's Sarah that laughs. She too seems to think that this promise of God is just, it's just too good to be true. As the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it, Abraham and Sarah have by this time become accustomed to their barrenness. They are resigned to their closed future. They have accepted that hopelessness is normal. The gospel promise does not meet them in receptive hopefulness, but in resistant hopelessness. Of course, we know that this is not the final word for Abraham or for Sarah. Their stories don't end in doubt. There's good reason that the New Testament lifts up both of them as models of faith. But that doesn't mean that they didn't experience doubt at times. It doesn't mean that they never struggled to believe the the outlandish promises that God made to them. At times, it seems like they felt great hope in God's promise. But in other moments, as the years passed and that promise seems more and more implausible, at times their hearts were filled with hopeless doubt. And in their moments of doubt, they, they did what we all tend to do. They, they tried to take matters into their own hand. And I'm not just talking about that situation with Hagar. That's a pretty clear example of trying to take matters into your own hand. But on two separate occasions, in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 20, Abraham is worried about how other men will respond to Sarah when they travel to another country. And he convinces her to lie about being his wife to preserve his own life. And you might say, well, maybe maybe Abraham was right. After all, it turns out well for them in the end, doesn't it? On the first occasion, Abraham leaves Egypt with a bunch of sheep and donkeys and servants that he got from Pharaoh after he had tricked him. And on the second occasion, the, the Canaanite king Abimelech returns Sarah after he's made aware of the deception. And again, he lavishes Abraham with wealth. And you... You might read that and think, well, isn't Abraham being blessed on both of these occasions? And wasn't that God's promise in the first place to bless him? Maybe these tricks that Abraham and Sarah are playing on people, maybe that's just God's way of blessing them. But you know, on both of those occasions, Abraham admits that his motivation isn't a trust in God's promise. His motivation wasn't faith, it was fear. And on both of those occasions, Abraham proved not to be a source of blessing to the nations around him, as God had promised him. He ended up being kind of a curse. So I would suggest that just as in the situation with Hagar, so in these moments of deception, what we find is not Father Abraham, hero of faith, but doubting Abraham victim of fear and disbelief. And yet, even in his moments of failure, Abraham can be our teacher. Because just as he shows us what it means to trust God, he also shows us what it looks like when we distrust God. When Abraham trusted in the promise of God, he was hopeful. He was courageous. He was able to leave his past behind. He set out on a journey towards some promised future. He acted as if he could really trust what God had said. 
But just as we saw in the story of Adam and Eve, the moment that he began to doubt, that's when he tried to take things into his own hand. And that's a pattern that continues to repeat itself throughout the Bible. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and and the people of Israel, they can't see him anymore. And they begin to doubt God's promises to be with them. What do they do? They take things into their own hands. They, They build an idol and they worship that instead. And later when they're going into the land that God has promised in the book of Numbers, and they get reports telling them that the inhabitants of the land are numerous and mighty, what do they do? They doubt God's promise. They begin to to be afraid. And then when the Lord tells them that he won't allow them to enter the land for several decades, well, what do they do then? They decide again to take things into their own hands and they try to go defeat the Canaanites by themselves, saying that they're going to accomplish God's promises for him. And later on, when they demand a human king, God says that their request isn't motivated by faith, but by doubt in him, by their desire to take control. Again and again in the lives of individual people like Adam and Eve, Abram and Sarah, and in the lives of the nation of Israel as a whole, we find this pattern repeating itself. People doubt the promises of God. And in their doubt, they try to take matters into their own hand. In fact, that's precisely why the Apostle Paul, why he brings up this story of Sarah and Hagar in Galatians chapter 4. Because in that letter, he's reminding Christians in Galatia that the freedom and the hope and the joy of their lives is based not on anything they can do for themselves, And not on what they can make of themselves, but simply, simply in the promises of God that have been given to them. And Paul asked them, which path are you going to choose? Are you going to trust in this promise of God and Jesus Christ, no matter how implausible it may seem? Or are you going to do what Abraham and Sarah did when they doubted and tried to manufacture their own solution? As Paul himself says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What we see in Abraham and in so many parts of the biblical story is this this exact tendency that a person begins their relationship with God by hearing, by trust, with faith, simply by believing in his promise. And yet, so often, having begun by faith, we then attempt to take control and perfect our lives through our own efforts. That's what Paul meant when he says perfecting according to the flesh. And that was true for Adam and Eve. It was true for Abraham and Sarah. And it's true for us today. And and you might say that today, the temptation to, to do this, to take control that it's become even worse. For unlike Abraham and Sarah, we live in a modern world where almost every aspect of our lives, from our health to our finances, to our comfort in both summer and winter, almost everything we encounter in our daily life is open to our control. Or at least that's how how life feels in the modern world. 
As the sociologist Peter Berger once put it, modernity means an intention, if not in fact, that men take control over the world and over themselves. In principle, there's the assumption that all human problems can be converted into technical problems. And if the techniques to solve certain problems do not as yet exist, then they will have to be invented. The world becomes ever more makeable. Now, maybe that sounds like a very abstract way to talk about life, very, very high and removed from our day-to-day -day experiences. But the, the truth is it's our day-to-day -day experience of the world around us that inclines us to treat our lives as something to be controlled, as technical problems that need technical fixes. And the more that we can control things, the less we have to depend on those promises of God. Of course, there's nothing you or I can do about the culture and time in which we live. We can't escape the modern world. I'm not suggesting we should try. My only reason for bringing this up is to suggest that maybe we're more like Abraham and Sarah than we realize. Maybe we too tend to doubt or at least to forget the promises of God. Maybe we too think that they, those promises just sound too good to be true. And maybe at times we, we stop allowing ourselves to hope that God will do what he said he'll do. And instead, we start relying on whatever it is we can accomplish ourselves. Maybe, just maybe, we have more to learn from Abraham than we thought. Thank you.